Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. An academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. It's independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, go to indogerman.center. And of course, you will also find that link in our show notes. Today, we will talk about China, the world's biggest country, still a major economic powerhouse, important market, both for production, but also as a selling point for international companies how it is to do business in China, what the challenges are, the obstacles, but obviously also the benefits. That is the topic of today's podcast. And I'm joined here by a true expert on China, Professor Horst Löchel. Welcome. Hello. Professor Löchel is a professor of economics and he is the co-chairman of the Sino-German Center at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, where he is also a professor. He is a member of the Board of Directors at Shanghai International Banking and Finance Institute, or ZIPFI for short. Professor Löchel joined Frankfurt School in 1997 and he has held several positions here, both as acting and deputy dean, among other things. He then went on a long leave from Frankfurt School and uh, went to China to become the foundation manager of SIPFI in uh, 2003. He also held the position of chairman from 2004 to 2012 and vice president of the managing directors from 2003 to 2009. In 2009, he was appointed as the director of the German Center of Banking and Finance at uh, SIEPS, China Europe International Business School, the well-known business school in Shanghai. And he remained there as a visiting professor of economics until 2020. As you can see, he is a true expert on China, not just theoretically, but also very practically from having lived there for a very long time. And I'm really glad that you were able to join us here today. So let me begin. I said China is still the world's most populous country, obviously economically extremely important for major international companies. If you compare the climate for a foreign company doing business in China today with, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago, what do you say? What has changed? Yeah, thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. What has changed is the maturity of the Chinese market. We have a rising middle class now in China. I mean, we are talking actually with 300 to 400 million people as this middle class. So and this is, of course, very much important for foreign producers to selling their products in China. The market has very much changed. I mean, in, in the 80s, in the 90s, and even 2000 and so on, uh, there was very much export market for foreign producers, foreign companies. Now it's more a domestic market to tell their products. 
Rising middle class, you said that that probably means that production costs rose, so it's probably more expensive now to produce in China than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But the market opportunities for selling also different kinds of goods, they have increased, would you say? This is the natural way of the division of labor. If a country gets more rich, the labor costs are rising, the, in, in, in China actually dramatically rising. So companies who using, uh, let's say, China as a benchmark uh, for their own production for exports with cheap labor, they're already moving out from China to other uh, East Asian countries producing there. And you are right. So the market is more mature. That means... Uh, you are looking to sell your products to the to the Chinese customers, which also have now more money, let's say, to pay for sophisticated products. So you would say there is a, a change in the focus of uh, companies, international companies, looking at China today as opposed to a decade ago. This is right. This is right. It's not so anymore so much to use China as a production location for the export, but more for sell a selling place for their own products. What are the opportunities and maybe also the challenging, the challenges to do that, selling into the Chinese market? The opportunities is the, the size of the market. Yeah, there's the lack of the big numbers in China. This is always is always the case. It's a very much scalable market. You see this in the success of Chinese companies, the big tech tech companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Didi, and so on. They simply scale. Uh, some platform business and this is of course even if the margin is not so high very profitable business because of the large scale so it's the numbers what matters is also the increasing income of the people the challenges is that china is a very different economy it's ruled by a party it's basically a party state right which makes let's say the legal environment a little bit tricky because it's changing all the time and uh, especially foreign companies not always can be sure that they're on the on the right side there let's say in this way and regulation are changing uh, the regulation are substitute for laws let's say to adjust always to this kind of changes is a challenge for foreign companies this is more let's say the business environment somehow but of course you have other challenges, especially in the last five years, is, this is the competition by the Chinese companies. The Chinese companies, especially in the tech sector, are very much competitive. So if you take German companies like SAP or something like that, if you talk with the managers there, they're very much under pressure to keep the pace with the Chinese companies. So the rise and uh, advancedness of Chinese companies is now a much stronger business challenge than it was many years before. You said regulation is uh, tricky because it's a well, it's an authoritarian regime, so it's uh, unpredictable to a certain extent. You said competition is becoming fiercer. Um, does that also include uh, the Chinese government actively supporting their national champions as opposed to international companies more than maybe in the past? I don't know more, but at least they're doing this right from the beginning of the reprocess started in 1978. They have never ever this neoliberal thinking, let's say, to make anything open, but they protect, of course, their own industry, including manage their currency still, for example, but of course protecting also the, the industry, for example, the banks. 
das ist fully clear. Uh, whether this has risen in the sense of they're protecting more their own industry, I don't think so. This is more the internal strength. These are private companies, yeah? Of course, they're always connected with the government, whoever, and they have a party committee and all this stuff. But in the end of the day, Tencent, Alibaba, Didis, and so forth, Baidu, uh, just got the approval to run a taxi without a driver, by the way. This is private companies. And they are strong. They are, they are competitive and very strong. This has nothing to do with the government. This is more the challenge for the companies. And they also subject to the regulatory unpredictability to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, especially the tech company. In yeah. the last year, we saw kind of a crackdown. There's still a discussion what are the reasons for that. There are two hypotheses main. The one hypothesis, uh, anti-monopoly. You have to see companies like Alibaba, they have actually a monopoly. Let's say they screen, they have uh, internal corporate joint ventures, uh, departments, and they screen the market and all what could be strange competitive for them. They simply buy it, Tencent buying 100 to 150 companies each year. This is the one to break this monopoly, which is actually the same like in the United States, but also here in Europe, more or less. Google's of this world, of course. The other hypothesis for that is that maybe the Chinese government, especially this leadership, is not so happy with such power of private companies. Yeah, they have says 100 state, big old state-owned companies, Not in the tech sector, but in energy and so forth, and infrastructure and communication, of course. Maybe they feel too much challenged by the power of this private company. This is the other, this is more ideology, politics. It's not sure yet. As I said, Baidu get, got now the approval to, to launch this. Also, there are now negotiations that Didi can go again to the, to the stock market in New York and all this kind of stuff. We have to see in the future how this developed. So that seems to imply that maybe it's less, you know, the Chinese companies versus the international companies that are being played out against each other, but it's more the public companies, the Chinese public companies versus the private sector. This could be one development in the future that, especially for the parties, the rise of private Chinese companies are a larger challenge than the foreigners. Could be, not sure. Let's... On the other side, it's clear. Who is driving the innovation in the competitors of China? The private companies. Who else? Not a state-owned enterprise. And the Chinese leadership knows this very well and depend on that. Let's talk a little bit about politics, which is important everywhere. And this is also the focus, of course, of this podcast. But in China, maybe more so, even more so than in other places, business and politics mm -hmm. are inseparable. And we've touched upon some of these items now. President Xi will probably be elected for a third term uh, this fall, which is unprecedented. He is said to be the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. How has he changed the country from a business perspective? He has basically much more centralized the overall economic policy and has, within this centralization, strengthened the influence of the parties. Uh, you have to see, we have this two-tier system in China. We have a party and we have a government. And the degree of liberalization depends a little bit who is in the driving seat. Since President Xi took over his position as a chairman and president of China, 
the party gets more influence. For example, you have in the Chinese party, you have two very important economic committees. One of the is called reform development, and the other one is called economic and financial affairs. In both, now Chi is the chairman. And they make the plans. The question is not, is this right or wrong plans? It's only the mechanism, how it works, could be the right plan, by the way. And they make the planning for, the, for let's say, for the medium term and especially for the long term. And this is then transferred to the government via these committees. So and he has strengthened this very much. In the former administration with Wen Xiaobao, Hu Jintao, for example, was clear that the head of the government, Wen Xiaobao at that time, was the chairman of those committees and not the president of China and the chairman of the party. And this has changed now and shows we have more influence of politics and yeah, of, the, of the Communist Party of China on business. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the role of the party, the role of the yeah. government. Now, for someone who's not familiar with uh, China, that, that may sound strange. You know, why are there these two bodies? They, they, they seem to be one, but then they are also quite different. If I'm a business leader and I am maybe considering doing business or doing more business in, in China, what does that mean in practical terms? How can I approach such a... a complicated market, at least from a non-Chinese perspective. Relationship matters very much to the government officials, but also to the party officials. This is now the reality, so you have to live. If you don't like this reality, you should not make business there. But again, it's a huge market, and sometimes the business environment is also very good. Uh, also from the provided by the party and by the government. So you should have relationship with the party officials, with the government officials. You should regular visit them. When I my time in China, I, we have Richard York was at then the CEO of HSBC in China. And his main business was to travel all the time all over China and visit the party officials and uh, the government officials and shake hands and have dinners and have talks and this and that and what do they need and also show your commitment to China. Give some donors for some disprivileged regions and all this, this, this kind of stuff. Yeah, This relationship business, I think, is overall Asia is very much important, independent somehow from the party. Okay, so you would say that's more of a cultural thing than yeah. necessarily a politically dominated thing? I think so. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. We have uh, two fixed segments in mm -hmm. uh, our Business Diplomacy Today podcast. And the first one is a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. We ask all our guests to give their best prediction of how the world in their area of expertise in the topic of uh, our podcast episode will look like in 10 years. And uh, we know that that is a difficult call, so we won't hold you responsible. We will not revisit in 10 years and point any fingers. But please give our listeners your best guess of how China, the situation in China will look like in 10 years. Yeah, this is, of course, a very difficult prediction here. I, I would say a pessimistic scenario would be that we will see a block, aliens between Russia and China, for example, right? So business and also politics very much, uh, again, um, on the ideology side of the things or against the West. 
uh, this, this would be more the, the pessimistic side. The more optimistic side is that we at least return to a situation which we had before the pandemic, where we have a normal competition, even a system competition, but also normal business between Western countries and China. And also, especially since uh, Russia invasion in the Ukraine, this relationship between business and political change is very much under challenge. I'm still in favor of that. I still hope very much that uh, the exchange of ideas of people on goods and services and, and, and has also an influence, let's say, of the inner political structure of the economy uh, and the society. So if we come back to the old world, I would say this would be also very much in favor for the domestic political development in China. But this is, let's say, the more optimistic view. Nowadays, it looks a little bit more like the pessimistic side, also seeing all this self-reliance, uh, reliance, self-sufficiency stuff, not only in China, but also in Europe and, and the United States. So this is now to get more independent. We should not be dependent, although business is always dependency. But anyway, we should not be too much dependent. Today, the more pessimistic scenarios is more likely than the optimistic scenario, unfortunately, yeah. So uh, we may not see the end of history as it has been predicted uh, by Francis Fukuyama <laughs> in the 1990s, but maybe we see the end of globalization or at least a yeah. significantly re reduced version of uh, globalization. Let's get back to the, the business opportunities. And you said it's changing, obviously. China has become much richer, a much more mature economy. It's not that cheap labor place primarily anymore, but it's, it has a, a huge and, and rising middle class. On the other hand, there are also signs that demographic change is uh, starting to affect China. Population growth is decreasing at the same time the population is aging. You know, as an economist, you're obviously aware of the uh, demographic dividend that countries go through. Has China already cashed in on that dividend and is now starting the slow decline that other developed countries uh, have also experienced? They have cashed in. They live from this demographic, the first one and the second demographic dividends very much. This is over. And this is one of the challenges of the overall Chinese economy, how to handle that, how to get rich before getting old. This is uh, one big challenge for China and translated in business and in the economy, this means innovation. We are here in Europe, we are in Germany, we are also a very aging, fast-aging society, how we handle this with innovation and increasing productivity. So they do need high-sophisticated capital, high-sophisticated products and high-sophisticated production in order to compensate the lack of labor and related increasing salaries and wages and all this kind of stuff. So it's both. It's a challenge, but it's also opportunity because it's very much a driving force running out for, for labor to increase your productivity. Otherwise, you, you are stuck and then you are somehow in the middle income trap. But I think that the Chinese government is very much aware and the Chinese party as well of this issue. That's why they launch big plans for increasing the innovation speed in China, not only for the internet platforms like Alibaba, which is basically a consumer, a consumer business, but also, let's say, for means of production, 
and also on high sophisticated products like semiconductors and this discussion here. In this direction, they're moving forward. And do you think that will be enough? Because I, I'm wondering, to, to me at least, Chinese society is a rather homogeneous society compared, to, for example, very much like Japan in that context, uh, whereas other countries, aging countries, have resolved those issues at least partially also through immigration. This seems to be difficult, at least for me, to imagine that uh, China will become a country that welcomes a lot of immigrants. Yeah. This is a very interesting, very valid point. Actually, as a coincidence, I have two Chinese students who wrote some uh, scientific paper on that, demographic dividends. Uh, we discussed some way out of this issue. One is migration. But even for them, this is not really a reliable solution. They cannot think that China really opens their doors to have at least a controlled migration. This is probably not the way how it will work which is, by the way, another challenge. Uh, whether they can handle this challenge with more innovation and so forth, we have to see. I don't know. But you, I, I agree, there will be not much migration to China. For different reasons, also for the reasons it's far away from the next center. And the other uh, around, despite some exception, have also not so huge. Okay, in India you have, a, of course, a huge population. But whether they have really migration from India is another question, yeah. Mm -hmm. That is probably less likely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we need to talk about India as well, because uh, at least from a Western perspective, it's inevitable if you look at Asia, you will invariably start comparing the two big countries, uh, India and, uh, and China, much to the dismay of the Indians in particular, who are a bit tired of getting compared to China all the time. But there are also people who say that maybe things are shifting. So maybe China has had its days and India is the, the country that is uh, up and coming. So maybe those people who say that the 21st century will be an Asian century in the end are talking about an Indian century rather than a Chinese century. What do you think? First of all, I agree very much that the next century is an Asian century. The last century was the American century, and then the 21st century will be the Asian century, uh, not of, of, of one country. I think India has two uh, big advantages compared to China. First, it's probably more creative, especially in the sense of innovation, for whatever reason, but this is surely the case. And second, they have this, still this demographic dividend. They have still this demographic dividend. So if they have a kind of a clever industrial policy, hmm, I think they are, let's say, have much more outlook for higher growth rates in China in the future. That's interesting because you just uh, talked about China and uh, the attempt to tackle the demographic change through innovation. Mm -hmm. And now you said that, well, India, which doesn't yet at least have that demographic problem, or it has a different kind of demographic problem, it's just a, a strongly growing population, is for some reason more innovative. I would like to push you a little bit more on that. What do you think? Why is China not as innovative as maybe other countries? Hello. Uh, it should not be mistaken. Of course, China is also innovative. But let's say from this, from a technical point of view, my feeling is also from the development of the startups and from the development of the products there, for whatever reason, India has a kind of a perhaps stronger entrepreneurship maybe on a certain level to develop this kind of technology 
Also, maybe the education system plays a role. In the Chinese education system, uh, not at least because of the Chinese character, you have a lot of repeating all the, this kind of stuff. Also, the teaching, is, teaching style is very much hierarchical, so maybe the room of freedom to develop creativity is somehow less to India. This is, this is my feeling. I mean, we all know, looking at the technology development in the last 20 years, there's in India, there is a lot of development. Perhaps there is a lack of industrial policy, like in China, they're very much strong in this industrial policy. But from the innovative point of view, I think there is some advantage of the Indian side. Totally independent whether they like to overcome the demographic dividend or the loss of the demographic dividend. This is not so much the point. More is the point, let's say, the development of the technology as such. Yeah, and they have some strength in that. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because, I mean, and I have to circle back to, to yeah. politics here, because for a long time, also when people compared India to, to China, it was always this idea that, um, well, it, India being a democratic country is such a chaotic place and nothing really works, nobody takes decisions. Whereas in China, because of the authoritarian system, things get done. Yeah, so and I remember that must have been about 10, 12 years ago. I was uh, in in India, one of my first trips to India, and we traveled on a on a bus. We were taken with with a group uh, from I think it was from Delhi to Ghaziabad, which is like very short distance, but it took us hours because the traffic was insane. The road was narrow. There were cows on the road and the rickshaws and stuff like that. And I was sitting next to a French colleague from another business school who said, you know, if we were in China now, this would be an eight lane highway. Which is probably true. So the you know, development in terms of infrastructure and all these kind of things, they were they were much faster, and that led many people to even say, well, you know, maybe maybe an authoritarian system is um, not that bad after all for development. But the question is now, when it comes to innovation, could that also be an explaining factor? Let me first have a look on the on the question between economic development and political system. Uh, first of all, uh, China was in the 80s and the 90s developing economy and is now still an emerging economy, still a middle class country, far middle income uh, country, far away from the high income country. Though so that means this authoritarian style of uh, development fits probably more with this kind of development stage of the economy, either developing or emerging economy. This is the first one. The second one is the party state. We have to see that the lack of democracy in China leads to a strong legitimacy pressure for the Chinese government and for the Chinese party. Probably one of the main reasons why Deng Xiaoping started in 1978 reform and opening up is to assure the power of the party, to, let's say, develop the economy, make the people rich and give up the old stuff of ideology and class struggle and all this kind of stuff. So legitimacy is a very important point of this development. In a democracy and we live in a democracy, this legitimacy is given basically by voting. Of course, you need also a kind of a performance, this is clear, especially to get re-elected. 
But in this strong sense, passion to perform, like we see this in the Chinese government, the Chinese party, especially in economic terms. So it's somehow the deal, we develop the economy, we make you rich on the one side, on the other side, you keep us the ruling party. This is somehow since 1989, the deal in, in or 78, it depends a little bit, the deal in China. And from an economic perspective, it works very well, which makes the country, for example, for some countries in Africa, Ethiopia and so forth, very attractive, this kind of development model. How long you can make this, how long, when we have a clash with more individual wishes, also in, in, in public and in political affairs, we have to see. But... So far, it works very well because the economy is the most important point to develop for the government. And this is probably not so much the case in India. Yeah, but you need to deliver what a growth rate of what six, seven, eight percent GDP per year to maintain that legitimacy, what we say in China. Not any more of six to seven percent. If they have a growth rate between three to five percent, you have to see they are. Uh, have so huge GDP and they already have a strong increase in GDP per capita. So if they move forward with 3 to 5%, would be fine. But they immediately under pressure for all the, uh, even this, uh, if, if, for example, this strict uh, zero COVID policy, which pushes the growth rate of China's down. We have in the last quarter only 0.4%. And compared to last year, the quarter, compared to the first year, we're already in a negative territory. So we have, for example, also a strong increase of unemployment of young people. We have 15 million graduates from the university. So if 5 million end up as taxi drivers, they're probably not very happy with the system. Yeah. Yeah, and then they have this, this, this social, perhaps instability. We have to see that. But this is a little bit the issue. Hmm? But interestingly enough, I mean, we talked about uh, the one-party state, of course, uh, the Communist Party being the ruling party. But if I'm not mistaken, at least there used to be within the party for the careers to the top some sort of meritocracy within that. Yeah. Is that still the case or has yeah. that also changed? Still the case. Meotric society, very much performance-driven. You cannot be a member of, of the government or even not on a lower level or the party. You have to have all these admission tests. For me, the most, when I realized first how you come to a university after high school, they have a central exam and this is very tough. I have a niece, I'm married with a Chinese. She's a very clever girl. She makes a high school degree in Shanghai and she came only under 90, in this central exam, 90 point whatever percent. This she was required not to study in Shanghai, but to move to Heilongjiang to a second tier university because he had only 90.5% here in Germany. I mean, you could go to the best universities. Yeah, there's a very performance-driven society, you're right, also in terms of the selection of the officials of the governments, uh, also on the lower level. And I should add, this is the same like it was the case in the empire. So this system, what we have now, is not so strongly different to the 11 empires we saw in China before. As more you look at China, as more you, in history, also economic in economic terms, as more you realize that the breaks in this history are not so strong than it's, for example, the case here in Europe. Executive Briefing. What you should read now. 
Reading is important to stay up to date. Of course, you as a university professor would probably agree with that. So would you please give our audience a reading recommendation? What should a business leader interested in China look at, read to stay informed? This book I will recommend is not only in China, but it's raised the question what we touched before. How should developing an emerging economy develop their economy? And there's a very interesting book called Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose, by Stephen DeCant. And he is the director of the Center of Studies of African Economies of the University of Oxford. And he has written a very interesting book comparing inter alia India and China and other countries uh, for their development. And his main hypothesis is it depends on the elites. If the elites have an interest, for whatever reason, to develop economic performance for their country, it will work. If they not have this interest, for whatever reason, again, it will not work. This is his main. So it depends very much on the intention of the political elites in this economy. And found this very interesting. Great recommendation. Thank you very much. We'll make sure to put the link to the book also in the show notes. So if you were not able to take notes that quickly, don't worry. You can find it there. You mentioned history, uh, and that is a good segue to uh, geopolitics. We need to talk geopolitics, uh, and that, of course, is Taiwan, mm -hmm. an issue that has been uh, going on for many, many decades with uh, periods of tensions and then some periods that seem to be more relaxed. Recently, the tension has been going up. What is your, your take on this? This is, first of all, uh, overall a difficult situation because it's a situation in between. The high ambivalence here in the in the situation. We all know the history. This was a, uh, there was always China, Formosa, there's an island now called Taiwan. Then we have a Japanese war starting in um, 18 whatever, and then they took over the island. Then Japan was beaten in the in the Second Sino-Japanese War in the 30s. Come back to China for that reason, Taiwan or Formosa. And then in the civil war, Kuomintang, the Republican Party, lost against the communists, against Mao, and Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republican, goes to Taiwan. So this is very natural to say Taiwan is part of China. This is not to say Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China. But it's the same like Eastern Germany, of course, is part of Germany, although not part of the Bundesrepublik of West Germany. This is uh, clear. And so as long as nobody, for example, Taiwanese people can say we make a decision and the majority is we are part now of the People's Republic of China, then fine. But as long as it's not taking place, that is somehow independent, although historically part of China. So that now seems to be like Horst Löckel's wish uh, for things <laughs> to pan out, <laughs> which uh, I think is fair. Although I think, you know, Taiwanese people having a referendum and deciding to join the motherland is, seems to be fairly unlikely as uh, far as I can see or as far as I can um, determine the, uh, the preferences there. Now, this is, you know, your wish uh, for that. But of course, we see a lot of tension building up. Uh, we had the very recent visit by Nancy Pelosi, the Uh, leader of the House of Representatives, the Speaker, to Taiwan, which created lots of uh, tensions there. There are currently military maneuvers going on. So we're in a situation that could go either way, couldn't it? 
You're not expecting a military no. conflict? No, I'm not expecting a military conflict. I don't think the, the, the risk for the People's Republic and for the party and for Xi Jinping is much too high. So my guess is not that they won't take over, at least not now, in the military action Taiwan. They have the concern is that Taiwan becomes an independent state. This is, this is the, the concern of the People's Republic China. And this is historically would be bad for, for the People's Republic, but also military would be bad. Yeah, The Americans don't like, as we all know, cruise missiles on Cuba. And so the Chinese don't like American cruise missiles on Taiwan, uh, close to China. And economically, it's also bad because it, uh, Taiwan is very much advanced. So I think they are interested to stabilize the status quo and more concerned that this status quo is now challenged by Taiwan itself, supported by the United States. Yeah, I think this is the situation. And to leverage this, this overall diff very difficult situation by the visit by Ms. Pelosi, I don't think this was a very good idea. Yeah. There is no positive impact of this visit, yeah, neither for the democracy nor for the independence of Taiwan. So from a business perspective, say, you know, you're CEO of a company, you may be doing business uh, both with, uh, you know, the Chinese mainland and with Taiwan. Is there anything you should or could do? Or is it just, you know, wait and see what happens and hope for the best? I already read in the South China Morning Post today that some companies already preparing to withdraw from Taiwan or to reduce the Taiwan because they are concerned there will be war. This is, let's say, the one possible reaction. I hope this will not happen, but of course we cannot exclude this. Good. Well, let's hope for the best, of course. I think that uh, would affect the entire world economically, politically, if something major happened in that region. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. Thank you very much, Horst Lechel, for being Most with welcome. us today. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. 